Welcome back, everybody, to Trad Men. Very special guest with us today. Uh, Mr. Trent Horn has uh, uh, graced us here on our little apostolate to come and talk with us about baptism. Uh, if you don't know who Trent Horn is, you need to crawl out from under the rock. Y'all already know who Trent Horn is. So uh, I'm, I'm going to save uh, the, the big, long introduction uh, for Trent, and we're just going to jump right into it. So before we begin, let's say a quick prayer to the Holy Ghost that the divine spirit will enlighten our discussion and uh, lead us to um, a fruitful analysis of our topic tonight. So uh, please feel free to join along with us. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Veni Sancti Spiritus, repletor da corda fidelium et tui amoris in eis ignim acinde. Imite Spiritum tuum et creabuntur. Et renovabis facem tere. Oremos. Deus qui corda fidelium sancti spiritus illustrazioni docuisti, da nobis in iorum spiritu recta sapere et de eos semper consolazioni gardere. Per Christum Dominum nostrum. Amen. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Trent, welcome. Hey, guys. How are you doing, Trent? I'm good. Excited to be here to talk about this important subject. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, so we, yeah, go ahead. Go I, ahead I, I did want to ask Trent something before we started. So it's kind of off topic to our to our discussion today. But I was uh, looking at a pilgrimage in Tulsa called Three Hearts Pilgrimage. Yes. And I was watching the video, showing my wife, because I was thinking maybe next year me and my wife and at least our older kids could do the pilgrimage. And during the video, there either that was you on the video on the picture they took, or there's a guy that looks like you. <laughs> no, that well, was, have you taken that pilgrimage? Yeah, that was me. I, I I went on it last year with my oldest son, who was five at the, no, he's six at the time. He was six. We'll probably go again next year, and he'll he'll be seven. Uh, uh, yeah, and we did it. We did the option where you don't have to. You take a bus part of the way through. We still did ten miles one day, eleven miles the next day. Um, some people had small children, but I would probably recommend it for families with children at least five or six years old. Okay. So it, it was rewarding, I guess. Since oh you're yeah. Back yeah. Again it was this year. It was great. Yeah. I'll, I'll be there again next awesome. year. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we're looking at doing it. Cause it, it does sound very interesting, very rewarding. Um, but yeah, so yeah, we got a I lot just, out I of it. I just wonder if that was you. <laughs> it was, that was me. <laughs> So one of our things about this podcast is we're going back to square one. We're 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 going to try and participate in the new evangelization meeting. We're we're going to start basically from the beginning. And I think for 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 most of us, our our journey towards holiness in the church begins with the sacrament of baptism. And this is a this is a, a it's it's such a I, I would hate to call it rudimentary, but it's it's the basic it's your your sort of sacramental foundation on which you you begin your life in Christ that I think we all at least myself we kind of just overlook it you know uh-huh. and it's sort of one of these things that happens when you're a baby for the most of us so we don't really remember at least I don't and um, we just sort of 
gloss over it, but it's so it's so incredibly important. And I thought uh, Trent Horn would be just a great guest to come on and talk about this with us. Happy um, to do so. When uh, when we're thinking about baptism, and I, I I just sort of have a list of things that I I kind of thought would be interesting to talk about. The word bap- baptizo. Tell us about what that means and its and its evolution as it takes on like more of a religious meaning. Sure. So the Greek word baptizo uh, it means immerse, uh, but it doesn't necessarily refer to the full immersion of the body. It just means to immerse. So uh, we see, for example, when Jesus is in a dispute with the Pharisees and they ask him, "Why don't your uh, disciples wash their hands, the, the ritual hand washing uh, that the, the elders did. Uh, they, literally, they literally say, well, why don't your disciples uh, baptize their hands? They use the Greek word baptizo. Uh, says, why don't they immerse it in water? But it doesn't necessarily mean an entire uh, full immersion. So it's referring there, the word refers to immerse, to wash. But then later, as baptism attains a sacramental significance in the church, the word baptizo denotes the particular rite or action of immersing someone, not necessarily whole body immersion, uh, Mm -hmm. but an encounter with water that communicates sanctifying grace, the means by which someone is brought from spiritual life, uh, sorry, from spiritual death to spiritual life. Uh, And so in that, we we hear we see the word baptism uh, is used, and it's also used um, symbolically in scripture. Though still, I think denoting baptism, we see John the Baptist saying, you know, in ba- I think it's Matthew three eleven, I baptize you with water, but he who comes after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, uh, which would signify the purifying element that we see in baptism. Fire is usually used in scripture to denote a kind of purification of people. And which is which? And I know Jason's kind of having some some technical difficulties. He he might pop in and out here, so uh, we'll we'll bear with him. But I had a question about about going back. Let's go back all the way to first century Palestine. John the Baptizer is he is baptizing people on the banks of the River Jordan. We con- we think of baptism as a phenomenon of the Christian Church. The Christian Church. It does not exist yet. Right. What is John the Baptist do? It, a, I've always wondered, were those baptisms sacramental? My guess would probably be not. And if, if they weren't, what is it exactly John the Baptizer is doing on the banks of the River Jordan in first century Palestine? Right. So what's interesting is that we have records of this in the Jewish historian Josephus uh, talks about what John was doing. So the idea of cleansing water is something that is prefigured in the Old Testament. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel talks about this, that I will sprinkle you, your heart, sprinkle you with clean water. Um, we have a baptismal typology in Naaman the Syrian going down in the river and coming up again uh, cured of leprosy. Um, by the time we get to the period within the, the few centuries before Christ, we have religious groups like the Essenes, uh, these would be groups that practiced uh, ascetical, ascetical practices, so fasting, uh, living isolated from different communities, and also things like ritual washes uh, to maintain uh, Jewish purity. Washing had always been something within uh, Jewish law to maintain purity and things like that. 
but we see the Essenes using this a lot, and it is possible that John the Baptist was uh, part of an Essene community. We don't know exactly. These are the groups that are also described in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So mm. this may be related to the ritual washing that occurred in those communities, but Josephus tells us that the baptizing that John did was not something that remitted sins. Rather, it was a, a sign or a way of seeking forgiveness from God, but not that the water itself was something that uh, forgave sins. That's why John in Matthew 3.11, I believe, talks about being baptized by fire and the Holy Spirit, the one who comes after him, the one who is not that he is not fit to un, unloose his sandals. Uh, so I think that that's what's going on there is this more symbolic understanding of seeking to be cleansed by God, uh, a way of asking for forgiveness of sins through this ritual rather than the uh, the act itself being able to take away sins and give one the Holy Spirit, which is what we have in Christian baptism. And, I, and I've thought about this also, which is that the River Jordan plays such an important um, uh, role in salvation history. <laughs> And I and I look back. I, I think, you know, to the book of Joshua, uh, when when Israel finally crosses into the Promised Land, uh, the God Yahweh wants them to cross at the River Jordan to to great ceremony, right? And, right. And we we read those first couple of chapters, and I I thought how how interesting it was that um, that after the Exodus, this 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 great Hebrew warrior Yeshua leads Israel across the Jordan River. And then he goes in and he kills everybody, <laughs> everybody in the land of Canaan, man, woman, child, dog, everything kills everything, even going so far as to in, in part of the book of Joshua, hang some of the uh, Canaanite kings from trees where they hung there all day. And then he takes them down and throws them in a cave and rolls the stone away and rolls the stone. And then they, they apparently they're there to this very day. And then. Some couple, you know, many thousands of years later, a second Yeshua would come and lead us across the Jordan River. But instead of killing everybody, he takes all that, all that on himself, even hanging on the tree uh, for an entire day. Uh, and and of course, we know the rest of the story. So I always thought that was really interesting. The 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 sort of the symbolism leading up to uh, John the Baptizer at the Jordan River. Um, so I, I've, that's always been something particularly powerful for me. Oh, yes. Yeah, so the, the connection there is an important one. And in fact, um, Josephus describes individuals. I don't remember if it's Theudas or the Egyptian. It's one of the other Messiah claimants of that time that to make their claim to be the Messiah, they led uh, their followers outside of Jerusalem uh, to cross uh, to cross over the Jordan. So Jews of the time understood the importance of that symbolism, even those who wanted to think, who thought that they were the Messiah. Then, of course, Jesus himself uh, vindicates his true messianic status, which is when he is baptized in the Jordan, we see our, our first revelation of the Trinity uh, in the New Testament. And, and, and that is, that is so fascinating to me because, I mean, I think of that, like, if you're a first century Jew, the one thing that you, that you don't play games with is 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 how many gods there are, right? There's only there's only one God, and yet this 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 aspect of the Trinity comes out of the the, the very comes from the very early church. Uh, obviously, a divinely revealed truth, 
And instead of it just being rejected in mass, which is something sort of you would expect, um, this, this Jesus movement is converting thousands and thousands of followers. So I've always kind of taken that to be, well, it it must be, it's got to be evidence of the Holy ghost inspiring this in the early Christian church. Um, because I would think that something like that would be instantaneously sort of what you're saying. There are three persons in one God. That sounds an awful lot like polytheism, or at least it, it, I think it would be to a first century Jew, obviously me not being one, I'm sort of projecting, but, um, I always thought that was, that was very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about form and matter and, and, and why do they matter? And I, I'm going to, I'm going to go to a more recent story out of the archdiocese of Phoenix that I think we've all, we all know about now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the priest who was saying, we baptize you in the name of the father, son, and Holy ghost is the Catholic church being pedantic here, Trent. I mean, at the end of the day, isn't this just sort of a nice ceremony for, a, for that you have for your babies, and then you have some people over to the house afterwards, or is it bigger than right. that? Right. Right. So the Catechism of the Council of Trent says that every sacrament consists of two things, matter, which is called the element, and form, which is commonly called the word. Uh, so you have the matter, which is um, the stuff that constitutes the sacrament, the stuff that you are um, using to communicate sanctifying grace. And then you have the form, uh, which would be usually it would be the, the formula that is used or that is uttered so that the sacrament is valid. Um, and so uh, there are, are different formulas that are the form for baptism. Uh, so now in the Western church, that would be, I baptize you in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit. In the Eastern Church, the formula is in the passive form. Uh, the servant of God, Trent, is baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, but I think that some of you will say, oh, what does it really matter? You're always going to have a case where if you say, oh, it's only off by a little bit, so it's okay, uh, to try to say, oh, that's not a big deal. When people say this, I would ask them, well, when does it become a big deal to you? Are you just going to say the words don't matter whatsoever? Uh, because eventually, if you change them so much, uh, you're not um, you're not performing the act of baptism that Jesus Christ wants for the church. So, to give an extreme example, uh, the church does not re- we rec- the church recognizes the validity of most Protestant baptisms if they use the right formula and the right intentions. Um, we don't recognize the Mormon baptism as being valid, even though they have the right matter. They use water and the form sounds like it's correct. I baptize you in the name of the father of the son of the Holy Spirit. But in Mormonism, the terms father, son and Holy Spirit are so different from what they really are. The father is an exalted man who lives somewhere in this universe. The son and spirit are pre-existing beings then we're all pre-existing they're not eternal they're not fully divine so it's not valid uh you you have to say you know if we have to make sure the baptism we are doing is this what christ gave us if you change it enough it's not anymore so to give another example so we'll talk about the i we here in a sec but for people who think that's not a big deal i would ask them okay uh, do you think that this is valid, or at least it's a big deal to do this? When people say, I baptize you in the name of the creator, 
the Redeemer and the Sanctifier. The CDF mm-hmm. has said those are not valid. And I think a lot of people would say, okay, yeah, that is a little bit different. You're trying to really undermine the Trinity. You're trying to undermine God's revelation of himself. So they would see, okay, then what's the big deal with I, we? Well, what the CDF has taught as released on this issue is that we have to remember that baptism is not just a man pouring water, hoping God will do something. It is Christ who baptizes. Um, now, the, the minister of the baptism, Christ can work through anyone to baptize. That's what's great about sacrament baptism. The ordinary minister is a, a, a priest or a deacon or a priest in the Eastern Church. But in, a, in an emergency, anybody, even a non-Catholic, could baptize if they intend to do what the church intends. Uh, but ultimately, ma- ma- in every male or female, male or female, anyone, and even a, even an atheist could baptize. If he if he had a friend who wanted to get baptized, and the guy's like dying, and he says, "Baptize me," and be like, "Okay, here's what you say," and I'm trying to do what the church would do. That would be that would yeah. be valid and licit in an emergency, uh, because this is a universal sacrament. So Christ has providentially made it that it's you you can it's universal, right? I mean, if you think about it. Um, like human beings cannot survive without water. So it's not an unfair request that we be poured or sprinkled with water. If you've got people, you're going to have water nearby. You just will. Otherwise you wouldn't have people. And so you can perform the sacrament, but it is always Christ who is baptizing us. It is Christ who is doing it. And so oftentimes when a priest does it, a priest, uh, stands in the person of Christ. So it's even more fitting when a priest does it, that Christ does it, but it could be anyone. But the point is it's Christ who's doing it. I baptize you. When we say we, though, it becomes not just Christ working through the minister, it's suddenly everybody doing it, but everybody is not doing it. Only one person is pouring or immersing the individual. And so it becomes a community approval rather than Christ uh, cleansing the person of original sin. And so that's why the church has said that that's not valid, and that's why it's so important when people perform the sacraments, especially priests, uh, just do what the liturgical rubrics say. Just do what they say, and you won't have any problems. So, Well, you know, Trent, I, I do have a question on the, you know, the, the idea that anybody can baptize, you know, male, female, atheist, believer, or, or, or whatever the case may be, you know, and you mentioned that the, that the person is acting in persona Christe. So I could see somebody coming back and. Well, I, I, I wouldn't. Use, I wouldn't use it the way you phrased it, but. <laughs> oh, did I phrase it bad? <laughs> well, okay. not that you phrase it badly. It's just I would say it is Christ that baptizes us, but canon law is very clear: only priests act in persona. Christi. Okay. Okay. Well, so, that was. Yeah, I see what you're saying here. It's like, well, wait a minute. Yeah, I wouldn't use that technical formulation. I okay. would say that it is Christ who is baptizing, and they are working through the minister. But it is only those who have the sacrament of holy orders, specifically those who are presbyters or episcopal right. priests who are in persona Christe. So th- that would be the ordinary minister, priest, or, or a deacon, even though, according to canon law, deacons are not in the person of Christ. Um, but they're the ordin- that's ordinary, do that. But if you're in an emergency, you're at the hospital, the baby's born, but they're not breathing— mom or dad could you know could do that and it would be now here's the thing you could do an emergency baptism at home and it's not really an emergency you're overreacting and that might be unlawful you shouldn't do that you should have a priest do it uh or a deacon 
but it would still be valid if you did that. If it was a true emergency or necessity, it would be both valid and listed. It would be completely lawful to to do. But you're right. That's why when I say that it is Christ who's baptizing, we can't jump from that to anyone who baptizes in persona Christe, only priests. Okay. Are. Yeah. Okay, yeah, well, well, that that's a very good way to clear up what, you know, I could see being a contradiction. I mean, the the way you phrase that, that you know, it's not a contradiction in, right. the, in the theology of it. You know, I, I do I do want to go back to the matter uh, about it. And I and I apologize. I, I was having issues with uh, Riverside here and the when you know, were talking about baptizo. So if I repeat something, apologies. But you know, you you also just mentioned a minute ago about the the forms of baptism. You can do immersion, infusion, or aspersion, right? Pouring or sprinkling, right? And it seems it, it seems like in the early church, it was pretty uh, consistent that immersion, from from what we know, I guess, it seems like that that immersion was the normal form. And you know, I, I know there are questions about the jailer and how was he baptized and whatnot, but you know. Um, I, I guess my question is that the, the church is the church teaches that immersion is the fuller sign because yes. it best represents the death, you know, or the burial with Christ and then the, the rise into new life. But uh, growing up in a in a Protestant sect that did take baptism very seriously, you know, right. You'll hear fundamentalists say all the time that immersion is the only valid form and that any other valid form it is or, or any other form is not valid, right? So right. I, I guess my question to you is to to those people that say immersion is the only way, um, why is it not, and why why was there an evolution or change to accept the other the other forms of baptism? Right. So the Catechism says in paragraph twelve thirty nine. Baptism is performed in the most expressive way by triple immersion in the baptismal water. However, from ancient times, it has also been conferred by pouring the water three times over the candidate's head. So you're right. It's the most expressive form, but other forms are certainly valid. And the question of their validity, those who would say that, well, it has to be immersion, I would say, well, that's not what Scripture teaches. In fact, Scripture uh, does not give uh, an instruction for how baptisms are to be carried out. That's something we receive more through sacred tradition. Uh, the Didache, which is a first century catechism, it shows the thinking of the early church during this first century. And it says in chapter seven, it gives the baptismal formula and it says to do this in living water, uh, like in a river. If you have not living water in other water, if you cannot in cold in warm, if you have not either pour out water thrice upon the head. Uh, so even here you see a preference for things like uh, baptism in, in a river, for example, or somewhere you can immerse someone in a bath. But it recognizes it's not always possible. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, it says that 3,000 people were added after Peter's speech uh, to the church that day. But in the city of Jerusalem, you wouldn't have had necessarily a large enough water supply or area to massively baptize people in full immersion. It was probably done through pouring or even sprinkling. Uh, but I think when we look at the the evidence from the church, immersion is preferred, but the other forms are recognized as valid. And the church has come to see that there are prudential reasons for allowing these other forms. Uh, one would be there are areas where uh, maybe water is, is scarce, and so you don't have as much to do, large amounts of immersion. Uh, in many cases, uh, baptism of infants 
Uh, I know that there there are some priests. Uh, I mean, our, our child, uh, our third child, was baptized uh, in the Byzantine Church, so he did full immersion. I know there are priests or deacons who would be very hesitant to fully immerse an infant and would um, find it very difficult to baptize under those circumstances. So that's another prudential reason that I, th- I think is allowed the variety in, in the way the application is done. Okay, and and a follow-up to that, would you say that, that those that hold to the immersion because of the word baptizo are, I guess for lack of better terms, abusing the word or... Yeah, I, I think or, or, that they're they're committing an etymological fallacy um, when they say that okay, baptism has to mean this because because that is the meaning of the word immerse. Uh, but as I said before, even the Greek word baptizo does not imply full immersion of the body. It's used in Scripture to refer to bat to the immersion of only parts of the body, like the hands that you're washing. Right. So I would say that many of them are making an improper lexical argument. Okay. So let's get let's get uh, let's get down into the weeds of of baptism here for just a minute because we know that the the church teaches that a sacrament is not just a, a, a sort of uh, elaborate ceremony or 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 some type of uh, symbolic thing, although it uses symbols, but the sacrament actually has the effect of doing the thing that it symbolizes. Right. And so when we come to baptism, uh, my understanding is that baptism removes original sin uh, from us. And you know, I was baptized when I was, you know, less than a year old, and I still have this weird, unnatural attraction to evil. Trent, what happened? Did, did it did it not take? Did something did something not go right? What happened? Right. So uh, the catechism talks about the different effects uh, that baptism has. So uh, it says in paragraph twelve sixty three, by baptism all sins are forgiven, as well as all punishment for sin. So if someone is baptized, then they uh there is as the council of trent says there is nothing that will impede or hinder their entrance into heaven however baptism does not take away other fallen aspects of our human nature and that's just mm. that's just an element of human nature for example jesus was was sinless for example but he was capable of dying because he had a fully human nature uh, that would not be restored. That would not be have its full restoration until Jesus rose from the dead and had his glorified physical body. So the Catechism says in paragraph uh, 1264 that even after all our sins are forgiven in baptism, it says, yet certain temporal consequences of sin remain in the baptized, such as suffering, illness, death, and frailties inherent in life as weakness of character, and so on, as well as an inclination to sin that tradition calls concupiscence or metaphorically the tinder for sin. So we still have elements of our fallen human nature that we struggle with, but in baptism we are given the grace to better struggle against those frailties because we are now adopted sons and daughters of God. So it's necessary for salvation, but just because you're baptized doesn't mean you're quote unquote saved. Correct? Well, when you well, let me put it it depends Yes, I'm glad you had a quote-unquote there. Um, when you are baptized, you receive an indelible mark a- as an adoptive child of God. That is something that can never change. Moreover, after being baptized, 
you are definitely saved at the moment after baptism. As I said, at that moment, there would be nothing that would prevent you from entering into heaven. However, the fact that you were baptized at one point does not prevent you from committing a mortal sin and destroying charity in one's heart and the virtue, you know, what what you've achieved through baptism there. So, Mm -hmm. yes, if you're baptized, you are definitely saved at that moment the baptism is completed, but you still have temporal effects of sin that you may struggle with, and if you lose the struggle and commit a mortal sin, you uh, would be not in God's friendship anymore, but because you have that enduring indelible mark from baptism, you are able to be reconciled to God through things like the sacrament of penance. So I gotcha. A a follow-up question to that. You know, one of the questions I was going to ask you was about the indelible mark. It's a, it's a term that's frequently used. And I don't know that a lot of us actually understand what it means or what it looks like outside of it leaves a permanent mark. Would you be able to speak more detail about what it means to have an indelible mark? Yeah, well, I think the best thing to do here is just to go with what the Catechism tells us about that. So in paragraph 1272, it says, Incorporated into Christ by baptism, the baptized person is configured to Christ. Baptism seals the Christian with the indelible spiritual mark or character. Like in Greek, that probably comes from the word karaktu. We see this in Hebrews 1.3. It talks about Christ being the indelible stamp or mark of the Father, that he represents the Father. And that would hearken back to, uh, in the ancient world, if a king wrote a letter and he had a courier take it, he would take his royal ring and place it into the wax sealing the letter, and it left a character or a stamp so that you knew this letter was signed truly by the king. So it left that character, that stamp, karaktu, the mark. And so that's what we're talking about here, an indelible spiritual mark, not a physical mark, but one on our soul. And it says, no sin can erase this mark, even if sin prevents baptism from bearing the fruits of salvation. Given once for all, baptism cannot be repeated. It means our soul is changed and configured to Christ as an adopted child of God. And so nothing we do can undo that moment, but it could prevent us from having spiritual uh, fruits of salvation being born later, uh, and we, we could die outside of God's friendship, but we would always have that mark on our soul. Uh, that, that is something that would, that would never change. So if I, you know, as a, I, I'm baptized as a, as a, as an infant, and then later on in, uh, adulthood, I convert to Islam. It's not like, okay, well, let's take your, let's take that indelible mark away because you're no longer a, a member of the church. It doesn't work like that. No, it doesn't. You're it, baptized. You are baptized. It doesn't. That's the way it is. And that's the important element for saying that baptism is not repeated. It's not like if you became Muslim, we'd have to baptize you all over again. That was a controversy okay. in the early church about, well, if someone commits apostasy and leaves the faith, do they have to be baptized again? And the answer is no, it leaves an indelible mark. And that's one of three sacraments that does leave an indelible mark, along with the sacrament of confirmation and the sacrament of holy orders. So if you died apart from God's, God's friendship and went to hell, you would always have the mark of baptism on your soul. If you're a priest who went to hell, you would still be a priest. You would always have that mark upon your soul, uh, which would probably make hell even even worse, bearing that for, for all eternity. Sure. And going back to uh, the issue of, uh, and we talked a little bit about this in terms of uh, 
of, of the indelible mark and things like that. Um, if, um, Oh gosh, no, I forgot. Totally forgot my question. I had it, man. It was right here. And then I got so indelible. It's not an indelible memory. (laughs) It can go away. Especially if it's mine. Um, let's see. I had, um, oh yeah. Well, we, I I did want to get into a little bit about the question about uh, baptizing infants versus baptizing somebody the age of reason. And, um, how much does the intention of the baptized play into now? And I, we've, we've sort of covered this already because when, when Christ baptizes you, you are baptized and there, there isn't much of a, I accept, you know, part of the baptism. I, at least I don't see that as, as a part of the ritual. Right. So in terms of oh, Alexa wants to talk to me, Alexa, be quiet. <laughs> okay. Now she, now that, that, that I told her. Um, so, in terms of the the debate about infants infant right. baptism versus those who are fully uh, you know of the age of reason weigh in here and, and tell me what you think well the church teaches that uh faith is always uh, accompanied with baptism though it may not be the faith of the person being baptized the majority of people who are catholic were baptized as infants uh, this, the New Testament does not explicitly describe the baptism of infants, so it does talk about the baptism of households. And in the mm-hmm. early church, we don't see uh, descriptions of infant baptism early on, but we also don't see descriptions of, because sometimes people will say this, well, you don't see infants being baptized in the earliest uh, church fathers' descriptions of that. That's true. But you also don't see descriptions of children, because I would ask many Protestant churches that believe in credo baptism, the baptism of believers. Uh, they would probably, I would ask, when should a believer, when should a child be baptized? And they'd probably say the age of reason, 7, 8, 12, 13, even before that. I'm sure many Protestant churches that believe in credo baptism would be fine with a 7 or an 8-year-old going to do an altar call and then uh, being baptized. Yet we don't see descriptions of baptisms of seven or eight-year-old children in the early church either. Rather, what we have are disputes about whether children should be baptized. By the time of the third century, you see disputes about whether you should wait eight days after birth, which is when you would normally do circumcision, or do it immediately. And the church says, no, do it immediately. It's important. And Origen telling us, the ecclesial writer Origen in the third century, telling us that baptism was something that was given over uh, by the apostles. So um, what we see then is, you know, we, we see the point being is that baptism is necessary because it saves us from original sin. It's necessary for entrance into heaven. So clearly you want to baptize infants. Uh, the church recognizes this and that faith is a part of it. So even if you're not an adult with faith seeking baptism, uh, the parents of the child have faith and they and the faith is on is the parents faith on behalf of the child to seek baptism uh, for them. That is why the church's code of canon law says that baptism can only be given if there is a, a well-founded hope the child will be brought up in the Catholic faith. If the parents mm. are only doing this to please grandma, then the canon code of canon law says baptism is to be delayed. Uh, or postponed until there is at least so it doesn't have to be automatic, but a well-founded hope the child will be raised in the Catholic faith and that the baptism is done to seek uh, faith uh, on behalf of the child. I don't know if I got everything in your in your question in that. Yeah, in that, that makes sense. And and that 
that sort of leads me to the other question that I, when I forgot, now I remembered. Um, is it unethical, good idea, bad idea? Let's say I have a friend who, I, man, uh, we're, we're in a war zone, okay? We're in the military together. And this guy is a buddy of mine. He's an evangelical Protestant. But, man, I love this guy, and I want the best for him. In spite, in spite of he may not have the faith, but I want the best for him. So if he's ever about to draw his last breath and I'm there, I'm just going to go ahead and baptize him, even if he probably wouldn't like. Well, let's say he's a Protestant. That's a bad idea. Let's say he's a Muslim. Um, and so, you know, because yeah, or an he's atheist. a Protestant, he probably already is baptized. Or an atheist. An unbaptized great, atheist, great example. but yeah. Uh, yeah, so this is interesting. Is that is that a bad thing to do, or am I am I on the right track, or what do you think? Uh, I would say that it's not permissible, and this is something the church has actually wrestled with for quite a while. Um, Saint Thomas mm-hmm. Aquinas uh, talks about this in the Summa, and in that context, it would have been, uh, "What should we do for Jewish people that live among us who refuse to be baptized?" And some people may say, "Well, for their own good." just baptize them against their will because they don't know what's best for them and they need to be saved. And Aquinas says, no, that faith is a free gift, that people are able to freely choose God or reject God. So Aquinas said that forced baptisms are actually invalid, not just that they're impermissible, but if you baptize someone against their will, uh, then no baptism has taken place because if the person is capable of rebelling against that or not consenting, I'll qualify my terms here shortly, then sure. it would not be it would not be valid. So in that case, if someone says, I don't want to be baptized and then you do it anyways, it's it's invalid. And I would say that would also be the case uh, for adults uh, that it's not just the presence of rebellion, but the absence of consent would also make it invalid. So if you have your friend who is dying and he's unconscious but alive, it would not be permissible for you to baptize him. It would only be permissible if you had been given some clue that he would have wanted to be baptized at some point. But if he never expressed that desire, then you would assume that he would not want to be baptized, and you would have to treat it as such, uh, that it would be against his will, even if he had never said, don't baptize me. Um, it's presumed tacitly to be against his will because he never sought out baptism. As an adult, he could have asked you or asked a priest to baptize him, and he chose not to. And so we have to presume any baptism you would perform would be against his will. The trickier thing that arises is in the case of children. Um, What do you do if you have a seven-year-old child who comes to to you and says, I want to be baptized, and the parents prohibit it. Well, Aquinas also deals with this, and he says that here we have to respect the natural law that God has given, and according to the natural law, children are under the authority and dominion of their parents. And so as a result, um, it would be impermissible and invalid for you to—well, I don't know if the validity would take care. I'd have to look into it a little bit more. I I don't think it would be valid. It would definitely be impermissible for you— to baptize this child, because in the next case I'll bring up, it makes me question whether it's valid or not. I know it would be impermissible because you would be going against the natural law and the idea that children are under the custody of their parents. The parents get to decide what their religious upbringing will be. And so, uh, well, this will carry on. And this is just a case of normalcy, a healthy child asking for baptism. 
parents sure. say no, uh, it would be impermissible and probably invalid, I think, in that case. Then we get to the more difficult case, which would be, what do you do if you have a child who is in danger of death and the parents uh, don't seek baptism uh, for the child? Now, here is would be in my understanding that uh, the child is is in a, a, a dangerous uh, situation, uh, is for the good of their soul. It's an unusual situation. And so in this case, for example, a nurse could baptize a dying child of parents who did not seek baptism because it's uh, it's an exceptional case and the child has no opportunity in the future. Because in the other case of a healthy child, that child could grow up and choose, you know, maybe choose to accept it or choose to reject it on their own terms. But if you have a case where you have an infant who is dying in a hospital, a Catholic hospital, and a nurse, really, he's about to die, and the nurse would be allowed would be allowed. Oh, this is where it gets interesting. Let me see. I got to parcel this together. The church has thought about this stuff because it really does happen. And you got to, and these are oh, all sure. cases that have really happened. Yeah. You have to decide. And so what the church, I believe is taught in this circumstance is that it is permissible to baptize a dying child against the parents wishes, but it is not obligatory. So okay. you don't sin if you do it. And you don't sin if you don't do it either. And so that's, I think, the verdict the church has reached in, um, in that particular case. So that's when it comes to consent, we have to break it down in these various uh, layers. I just, I just hope I never find myself in that situation. Exactly. Well, yeah, the, the, church has also, the, the church has also said, I believe in canon law, that if a child is abandoned, you say they're abandoned on someone's doorstep and you don't know what to do with them, uh, they are to be, I think, conditionally baptized. Even if it's possible they were okay. baptized before, if the parents cannot be reached, then you would conditionally baptize them. But baptism is so important, so the church has really tried to think this through. In, all the, in canon law, I believe the term they use is uh, foundlings. What do you do with a foundling? Which, of course, Interesting. during the Middle Ages, and, and not that long ago, really, even in the 18th, 19th century, it's not that uncommon someone gives birth unexpectedly, an unintended pregnancy. They don't want to care for the child. They leave the child on someone's doorstep or leave it at a church. What do you do? Well, it, it's still the case in fire departments. Right. Uh, and I believe police department. Safe haven laws. Branches correct. as well. There's a, there's a safe haven. Yeah, and so you absolutely. would treat the child and as the a thing, foundling. Yeah. And the thing about the Catholic Church is it's a 2,000-year-old institution. I don't know that there are any other 2,000-year-old institutions. <laughs> so the thing is, is if it could have happened, it's happened. Right. And so the Catholic Church has had to deal with it at this right, point. Right, 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 yeah. Um, I mean, I, 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 and I get that a lot from why is, why is the Catholic Church so in the weeds with all these technicalities of, of, of little things like this because like, something because has happened. happened to require the rule <laughs> i guarantee right. you yeah absolutely um let's talk a little bit about baptism by desire sure because that's a very uh, that's something i've gotten wrong in thinking about it and i'm sure other people think they know what that is but maybe we don't um tell us what is baptism by desire when does it apply and maybe more importantly when is it not uh, happening. Yeah, so there's times where it's definitely happening and others where we may not be as sure. Paragraph 1258 of the Catechism says, the Church has always held the firm conviction that those who suffer death for the sake of the faith without having received baptism are baptized by their death 
for and with Christ. So if you are an unbaptized martyr, that's called baptism of blood. Um, and it says baptism of blood, like the desire for baptism, brings about the fruits of baptism without being a sacrament. So in paragraph 1259, it says, catechumens who die before their baptism, their explicit desire to receive it together with repentance for their sins and charity assures them, assures them the salvation they were not able to receive through the sacrament. So here we see the trend. This has very, been very long understood. Um, those who explicitly desire baptism but die before receiving it. Uh, canon law says they are to be given a Christian funeral and Christian burial, um, that they are presumed to have received uh, assurance uh, of receiving the grace of baptism because of their explicit desire to receive it. Uh, this desire for baptism has also been applied in different cases. Uh, it's been applied in the case of perhaps people who are ignorant of God. Could they be saved? Paragraph 1260 of the Catechism says, if people who are ignorant of God or Christ are saved, it may be supposed such persons would have desired baptism explicitly if they had known its necessity. So if somebody is saved and doesn't know the church, uh, it could be the case God knows that if they had been told about baptism, they would have sought it. And so that may apply there. Uh, and then children who die without baptism, that's a whole different question right there, a whole different topic to get into. But one theory, at least for whether children who can be saved who are not baptized, is that the, if the parents had desired baptism for the child, that the child could ben And I think this is highly plausible, especially for if you're Catholic and you ha have a miscarriage or a stillbirth. I mean, if, if I were to... I mean, I was baptized, I was 17. If I would have had assurance of salvation because I explicitly desired baptism for myself and mm -hmm. didn't get it, then the fact that I explicitly desire baptism for my child, and I am the one who needs to desire it, not the child. The child doesn't have to desire it when they're baptized. I just have to. If I have that for them and they die without receiving it, I think it's very plausible it would apply in that case, and, and a child who has died, at least of Catholic parents or Christian parents, would, benefit, would, would have a similar baptism of desire. But some people may place it, I don't know what you mean by, they might get it wrong here or there, but it's, there's firm and then others where it's more speculative where we apply it. You know, we we had a here recently, actually, we had Michael Lofton on the show and had a really dis good discussion on the, you know, unbaptized babies, right. what happens to them if they if they die. And, you know, this this whole idea of uh, baptism of desire, this concept was actually very new to me because I know when I was going through the conversion process into the church, I, I'd been baptized when I was 12, 13. Right. And um so uh, I didn't need to go through that, but I did wonder about the catechumens. Like, what happens if they die between now? Because that was one of my questions. What happens if they die between now and Easter when they're baptized? Because the church does teach that baptism is necessary because, uh, you know, the catechism says that the church does not know of any other or of any means other than baptism that assures entry right. into the eternal be uh, uh, beatific vision. Beatitude. Yeah. Yeah, the beatific vision. So that baptism of desire, I, I know for me, was was uh, was new, and it wasn't necessarily an easy one to accept sure. on its surface. But but once you get into the weeds of it and you start talking about it, it, it does make sense. Yeah, there's there's nuance to to, to everything. I think. I mean, <laughs> there's a there's a, a very famous. Uh, uh, 
portion in the New Testament where Jesus tells you if your if your eye is an occasion to skin, to sin, pluck it out. Well, you know, we're gonna. There's some nuance to that, and there's there's right to go into the, the, how the church interprets. And I think it's like important so, to remember that you're right. Um, that this is what uh, the church teaches uh, in paragraph 1257. The church does not know of any means other than baptism that assures entry into eternal beatitude. But then it also has at the end of that, God has bound salvation to the sacrament of baptism, but he himself is not bound by the sacraments. And so that's always important to remember that because God is omnipotent, he can save anyone however he chooses, but that doesn't give us a license to presume that he will. Uh, we are to carry out the ordinary commands he gives, and it's up to God and his sovereign will if he's going to make any kind of exceptions to that in a, in a particular individual's salvation. And, I, and I've always thought, when we talk about necessity of baptism, we have to define who to, to whom applies the necessity. Um, and and it, the necessity applies to us. There's There's nothing that... There's nothing that God needs from us. You know, I, if, if, if you wanted a blueberry pie, the, I, I'm going to need blueberries because without the blueberries, I just can't do it. It's no matter how much I'd love to make you a, a blueberry pie without the blueberries, no blueberry pie, because we need those. God is under no such right. uh, necessities of fully sufficient being. And so, um, that's sort of, and, and if it were the case that God simply, no matter how much he wants to, can't save you without baptism, then we, we really can't talk about the immaculate conception. Um, that, right. that would be a very difficult thing to happen, which leads me to an interesting question that people may or may not know the answer to. And if you do, I'd love to chime in. You know, our Lord uh, went through the baptism ceremony, even though obviously he did not need to be baptized right. because he had no sins. So we look at Mary as sort of pre-saved uh, mm-hmm. uh, by virtue of her immaculate conception. Is there any tradition in the church uh, that she went through the baptism ceremony at some point, or would, does the church just not speak on that at all? Or I, I've, I've just always been curious about it. Uh, I'm not, a, not. Yeah, I'm not aware of a uh, a tradition, uh, and there may be a very late one describing it, but I'm not aware of that. Um, I think that the sacramental graces or anything that Mary received would have been given to her in her conception or what she might have received uh, at Pentecost along with the other apostles. What's interesting there is that the new Testament also does not describe the baptism of the apostles either, but it's, Hmm. it would see, it doesn't describe them being baptized though. I think it'd be something safe to assume because uh, they had been given the sacrament of holy orders. They had been, uh, ordained the first priests of the new covenant. And so it would be obviously safe to assume that they had been baptized during some point in Jesus's ministry. It's not a ironclad proof, but it's um, that, that they had received baptism prior to the last supper. Uh, but that's another interesting element here that not all these details are described, even if we think that we would expect them. So I'm not aware of um, uh, other narratives or accounts relating to the baptisms of these individuals. And it almost doesn't make a difference one way or the other. Yeah. I mean, Our Lady is uh, obvious, but it's just, it wouldn't, it it's wouldn't just surprise. one of those curious things I sit around and think about. And, and it wouldn't surprise <laughs> me if she did. There is a slight parallel in the Gospel of Luke that it says after the time that, um, that of Jesus' birth that Mary and, and Jesus, Mary and her child, underwent the rite of purification, even though um, mm. they had not committed any, any sins, obviously, to warrant that. Uh, they still underwent that right. uh, Jewish purifi- purifi- purifying rite. You know, I 
I want to transition for a moment to script. Oh, we lost him. <laughs> we got it. We, he, he's got some spotty internet. As soon as he comes back, we'll, uh, he, he'll come right back in just a few seconds. Sure, but, sure. Um, there he is. He's, he's back. We got you. So back to the description. I, I, what I was saying is I don't want to necessarily proof text. Sure, sure. You know, scripture. But when I read scriptures like Acts 2.38, Acts 22.16, 1 Peter 3.21, they all talk about baptism, you know, it's for the remission of sins, washes away your sins, it saves you. You got Mark 16, 16, and, you know, several others that, that speak of the importance of baptism. Now, when you speak to uh, people that believe in faith only, they're usually pretty quick to bring up scriptures in Romans or other writings that, that Paul had that talk about faith that saves you. And they almost act like it it cancels out all the baptism baptism scriptures right what would what would your response be to be to these people do they have a misunderstanding of the context in which paul was writing about faith saves you or well they do and then that would be a very long digression uh i I think a short thing (laughs) that i would say to them is that even if you believe we're justified by faith alone that doesn't mean that you should reject the belief that baptism saves us so This is essentially the argument from Martin Luther, and Lutherans believe in baptismal regeneration. That Luther, in in arguing with other Protestants, said, you're right, we are not saved by works. And then he said, but baptism is not our work, it's God's work that saves us. And Mm. so that is how he replied. He said, yeah, you know, the argument might be like this for a Protestant. We're saved by faith alone, uh, baptism... Uh, is, you know, baptism saves us, or, you know, or baptism is a work, therefore we're not saved by baptism. Well, all that proves is that baptism is just not a human work of any kind. Baptism is something that we, we accept, and as Catholics, we would, especially infant baptism, we would say, look, you don't do anything. There, it's no work involved. It's done to you. And so there's no work. There's no work or merit or faith that uh, merits the initial grace of salvation. We, we're saved by grace alone, and we merely accept it and then choose whether we're going to cooperate with it for the rest of our lives. So I think what you can say to them is, look, even someone like Luther would say, fine, justify by faith alone, but baptism is not a work that we do. It is a work that God does in us. Um, and I cover that more in detail in my book, Case for Catholicism. Uh, but I think it's important to bring up that when Protestants reject this are not just rejecting a Catholic view. This is something Catholics, Orthodox, and many Protestants also share. You probably say that I would guess about all seven sacraments is really something that, that, that they're all God's work. Right. Um, yeah. yeah, the, yeah. So, so that's, and that's a great, it's yeah. a great argument. I'd never thought about it like that before. Um, mm-hmm. I do want to, so we're, we're, we're going to wrap up here. We've got about five minutes left. I just want to keep it to a tight hour, sure, sure. but I do have a question about godparents and I'm of this personal belief that, um, as, as, as good of buddies as you might be with the, uh, the Lutheran guy at work and you're just, you know, I want to, I want him to be the godparent of my, my, my child or whatever. And the guy and the Lutheran buddy at work may be a great guy. I'm always, I, I've been of this opinion that that is a very serious thing you're asking somebody to do and it's a serious responsibility that you take when you become a godparent or a confirmation sponsor that if this individual begins to either uh, lose the faith uh, 
you know, stray away from the church, that you have an affirmative duty to at least offer guidance or, or, you know, and ultimately you can't take away that person's freedom because that's given by God. So they're free to either reject or embrace our Lord. Right. It, it, do you think that, that this, this idea of who, how we choose godparents is done a little willy nilly nowadays uh, or does it, does it really matter? No, sometimes it is. We have to be careful. We do have to remember, of course, that godparents primarily serve, serve as witnesses to the baptism so that there is an enduring record of its validity. Uh, but they also are important in providing um, a spiritual upbringing and an example to the child. And so that's why it's important to have uh, a Catholic godparent. Now, this might not always be the case. Uh, for example, you might have a relative who is a faithful Catholic who is married to a non-Catholic. And you might ask both of them to be involved in being the godparents. What the church teaches in canon law, I want to say it's like paragraph 874, it talks about how uh, you can have a, a god, you can have two godparents. Um, can you have a non Catholic godparent? If they are Eastern, like an Eastern Orthodox, yes, provided that there is also a Catholic godparent, a sponsor. Okay, so you always have to have at least one Catholic involved. With, uh, male, female, one of them's got to be Catholic. The, you can have, the other can be a godparent if they're Eastern Orthodox. If they are not from one of the Eastern churches, uh, it says that they can be a, 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 I think it's like a Christian witness. Um, it, we allow the participation of someone from these ecclesial communities like a Lutheran or Anglican, what have you. You can have, you got to have at least one Catholic. And there they would not be a godparent actually, but they would be a Christian witness to the baptism. But you're right that okay. it, you serve as this important witness to the, to the child and you, you'd want to be living that out in your own life. So I would say that prudentially, one should always strive for two faithful Catholics as godparents, unless there's a, a grave reason otherwise. And, and if you're somebody's godfather and, uh, and, and that person asks you to commit a murder on the day of your daughter's <laughs> wedding, like, you on this have day, to do the that. day that's... of my daughter's <laughs> wedding, you come to me. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's great. You have to. It's a, it's a, it's the rules. Um, the no, of course not, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's that 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 is a those have been some and uh, some very enlightening answers to some questions that that I've had about baptism. I'm sure some of our listeners have had them too. Jason, did you want to uh, come yeah. in with some parting thoughts here? Yeah, j just a couple of parting thoughts. You know, again, thank you, Trent, for coming on. You know, when I was listening to a podcaster months ago, and I don't remember who it was, but somebody asked him, "Well, how do you get guests on your show?" And they said. Uh, well, I just asked. The worst they do is say no. So <laughs> me and Mark had talked about you coming on, so I shot you an email, and then you replied agreeing to come on. And, you know, like I said in the email, I kind of was swinging for the fences there. And, you, you know, what really you impressed me you about you, yeah, you, yes. Can't, you can't, uh, can't lose. <laughs> versus, what, what were you going to say? No, I was going to say what really impressed me about you was it showed your humbleness to come down on our little podcast show here. Oh, no, this has been really and, fun. I think this is all people. Um, no, no, it is. And one of the premise of our show is, you know, we've come up with kind of a new slogan, old, old school Catholicism for the new evangelization. You know, we, the, the, there's guys out there that are 
a lot more intelligent, especially on these subjects than we are. But me and Mark try to bring a perspective of what is the, like myself, what is a simple-minded layman think? What kind of questions is would he ask if he had a Trent Horn to talk to or, or you know, Jimmy Akins or whoever the case may be? So, you know, I, I know some of these questions were pretty, probably pretty basic to you, but we appreciate you, the clarification on them, because I know it cleared up some of the questions that I even had myself, you know, outside of the ones that, that, that I was asking for the sake of the show, you know, on the, on the topic. Oh yeah, absolutely. And they're very important questions and we got to get baptism, right? It's the door to the other sacraments. So you got to make sure you get that one, right? Right. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, our, like, like Jason was saying, the, the new evangelization, I I'm firmly believing we got to start from scratch. We, we don't, we don't even live in a world anymore in which we can all agree that telling the truth is better than telling a lie. Right. Yeah. Which if you if you can't if we if which means we're starting from scratch and um, I, I I personally I went to law school uh, with a young lady who heard about Christ for the very I mean didn't even have a misunderstanding of Jesus she she knew that Jesus was an important religious figure you know but other than that had never cracked the Gospels had never read the story before never heard the Jesus story before. And I thought, you know, this is, she's a 20 something year old, uh, millennial, uh, very, you know, very technologically adept. She's out in the world. She's not a, you know, she wasn't raised in a, under a rock or anything like that. And I just thought, you know, there's probably so many more people like that in the world. And that's where we got to go. So, um, having you on to come and talk about, the, the threshold of how we begin our lives in holiness, which is baptism. Uh, I think it's just been a real grace and I'm, I'm very grateful. And, um, and I hope that God will continue to bless, uh, the council of Trent, uh, YouTube channel. If you're not subscriber to that channel, you're going to see a link in the description so you can go, uh, subscribe. And, um, I, you know, I uh, just thank you to Almighty God. I just must omnipotence Deus per universis beneficiis tuis clivis et regnas in seculas seculorum. Amen. et spiritus sancti. Amen. Thank you, Trent Horn, and thank you, Tradmen listeners. Um, until next time, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and remember, life is hard, but it's harder when you don't pray the rosary. Pray your rosary. God bless. God bless everybody. Take care. <laughs>